Hi, this is Jeff Cobra, and we welcome you to this Disney at Work podcast. Well, this past week, Disney legend Broly Crump passed away after having a unique career, helping to build such memorable attractions as the Enchanted Tiki Room and It's a Small World. One of his first assignments as a new Imagineer at WED was remodeling the Adventureland Bazaar. We share that story and its messages around trust and being enterprising. And then we head to two separate emporiums across the globe, one at Walt Disney World and the other at Disneyland Paris. This latter is going to tie into our last podcast where we toured part of Main Street USA at that park. Here we're going to glean some additional insights from two other retail locations about the importance of organizational trust. Join us as we celebrate Raleigh Crump and then learn about the power of trusting and empowering others. This podcast, as well as others, are brought to you by Performance Journeys, which celebrates its 20th year as a training and development group, bringing best-in-business ideas through keynotes, workshops, seminars, and amazing benchmarking programs to organizations in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. If you're seeking to improve your customer delivery, to re-engage the morale of your workforce, or to improve the leadership of your organization, perhaps building organizational trust as we're going to talk about today, well, we offer great solutions, tried and tested from our time working intimately to raise excellence in organizations, big and small. We even have a one-day program in entirely dedicated to building trust. So at Performance Journeys, it's as much about the journey as it is about performance. And our opportunities here at Disney help you to see some best-in-business ideas for how to improve your own organization. That said, we are glad to have you with us today on this podcast. Make sure you subscribe to Disney at Play Dot com and make sure that uh, you, um, if you have a chance, go to iTunes or whoever you subscribe through your podcast. If you could give us a, a positive um, recommendation or rating or note, that would be so great as we help to build the, uh, the littlest podcast that ever could. Well, we're starting with remembering uh, Rolly Crump, who has been in the news in the last couple of days, and those who love all things Disney knows a little bit about um, Rolly Crump. He actually authored a book called It's Kind of a Cute Story, and oh, I recommend this. I'm going to be um, bringing uh, a story from that experience, but Rolly had a, had a crazy career involved with um, Attractions for the New York World's Fair, the Enchanted Tiki Room, those tikis outside, particularly in the gardens, are, are Raleigh Crumb's design. Um, it's a small world, the Tower of the Four Winds at um, the, um, the um, World's Fair, and then later his work on the exterior using the design aesthetic of Mary Blair. He was so good at crafting um, a lot of the a lot of the props and a lot of the toys that you see within that attraction just has his design aesthetic. There is something, um, when you see the numbers come up, um, 
in the clock on It's a Small World, you know you're looking at a Raleigh Crump um, font style that is just traditionally his. And he just brings uh, so many crazy and different, uh, different and nuanced ideas to the to the table. His work with the, the legendary Haunted Mansion um, and what was originally at one point called the Museum of the Weird. He brought in a lot of very crazy design elements that were ultimately added to the mansion. It's just, there's something really magical and wonderful about Raleigh Crump and what he brings to the table in terms of his artistic design. I also love the fact that the guy worked out, he was really very athletic and and really um, um, enjoyed that part of his life as well. He had a career also outside of Disney. My favorite attraction outside was um, the Berry Tales at uh, the uh, Knott's Berry Farm. Berry in this sense is is a play with the Berry Farm and also a bear, B-E-A-R. And, um, and so it was this steampunk meets teddy bears meets um, Knott's Berry Farm, boysenberries. All of it kind of combined together created a very unique little dark ride that, again, Joss carried his look and feel to it. And um, it's just a wonderful, wonderful artist who brought his own approach. And, and you know... Disneyland was really a collection of artistic skills brought together, and his was some of the most eccentric and unique. Um, now, when he was first uh, hired as um, an Imagineer back in the days of WED, this was um, very early on in the early days of Disneyland, there was an area in Adventureland with a little shop called The Bazaar, still there today, by the way, you may know it as a nice breezy, and I'm reading here from, it's kind of a cute story. Um, I'm summarizing from that book. Um, originally, that bazaar was kind of dark in terms of its interior and so forth. They wanted to sell more uh, rubber snakes and so forth. So Dick Irvine gave him the responsibility to put together in very short order a very different looking interior for this attraction. Um, he, uh, Dick Irvine was associated with Grosh Studios over at MGM and 20th Century Fox, so they kind of helped bring in some of the element for this. Um, but um, um, it, um, the whole challenge was to him is that he had to put this thing together and he had only six weeks to do the whole thing um, with no drawings, plans, or anything. Everything was kind of largely from scratch. Well, he 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 linked up with Jack Olson. If you know who Jack Olson is, he was a, so he was Mer Mr. Merchandise. He was the king of merchandise at Disneyland and the one of the one of a kind shop and other. Um, very unique uh, retail experiences at Disneyland and later at Walt Disney World, the whole World Showcase and its shopping experience. Well, Jack's, because there wasn't a lot of uh, people on board, Jack spent a lot of time in interior design 
as well. And he suggested giving some help to Raleigh, which was good because Raleigh didn't have a lot of experience with with retail. Jack suggested going to the Boneyard. And, and Raleigh was like, what? The Boneyard? What is the Boneyard? Actually, not only does Disneyland have a Boneyard, uh, Walt Disney World has a Boneyard. It's actually behind Tron. We call it... Um, we call it um, Pluto's Boneyard because you know how dogs love to bury bones in the backyard. When, for instance, 20,000 League submarines were taken out of the lagoon, they were originally put into the Boneyard as kind of a holding place. And, and that's what the Boneyard at Disneyland was essentially. Anything that wasn't being used at Disneyland was brought over and just dumped over in the boneyard to see if it might be used at some point somewhere else. And one of the things that was in the boneyard were old ticket booths. Now, ticket booths went on long after this design was done, but but originally you had to go and there were no ticket books. You had to go and purchase each individual ticket to go on the attraction A, B, C, D, and then eventually E. And, and so there were a lot of booths not very far away where you would go and buy the individual ticket and then go on the attraction and ride. Later, ticket ticket books came along and they, um, they dropped the number of ticket booths around so it wasn't so many. But there were some old ticket booths and he very cleverly decided to use them as, as point of sale places, cash register locations within... Uh, the bazaar. They also found a lot of other stuff there, like street lights and crates, and um, and so they kind of incorporated them into uh, the bazaar. They they were things um, you just couldn't buy off the shelf, um, and there were things that had to be bought built from scratch. Um, but they went to work on this, um, and um, and they they really. Uh, um, put the efforts. Chicken Plantation had some columns that were used, and this was about the era in which the Chicken Plantation was taken out to make room for what would become New Orleans and the Pirates of the Caribbean. And so they kind of incorporated some of that um, as well. He didn't have a desk at that time. He literally created his sketches on top of an apple crate or apple box, um, as it were. And handing these sketches, and one of the at one of the points, one of the carpenters came to him and said, "Now, what scale are you working from, Raleigh?" And Raleigh was like, "Scale? What do you mean by scale?" He goes, "Well, do you have a scale ruler?" He goes, "What's a scale ruler?" So, so they took some cardboard and created a scale ruler. So, okay, now this is going to be six feet in height, and this is going to be eight feet in height, and so forth, and and um, and they kind of used this little ruler to kind of um, uh kind of understand Raleigh's drawings in terms of the scale and, and the height in which they had to be built. At any rate, um, he goes on to say, quote, the interesting thing about it, the bazaar, is that I worked seven days a week for six weeks straight to get this thing done. I was working my ass off. This is Raleigh's words. Of course, he was a colorful individual. However, Dick Irvine didn't think I'd get it done on time. So he purposely gave me the wrong end date. He gave me a week's lead time because he assumed I wouldn't get it done on time 
and would need an extra week before the real opening date. So here's the head of WED, and he's thinking this new guy, he's not going to get it done. So I'm going to give him a tighter time frame to get it done. And then I'm going to build in a cushion of an extra week uh, when he fails. Uh, assuming he's going to fail or assuming he's not going to meet his deadline so that I still meet my deadline and so forth. So he's not being transparent. He's not being honest with Raleigh, but he's ex probably had the experience, honestly, of working with others and having them go over um, time and money. And here is Raleigh trying to be resourceful with the budget, going to the boneyard. Here's Raleigh working night and day to get this thing done in time. Anyway, it goes on in the story. So he told me they were going to open up the bazaar on a Wednesday, and he gave me the date. I thought to myself, okay, fine, I can do this. It was my responsibility to get everything shipped from the Grosh Studios, which was helping them the, the weekend before. I would have to get it all installed by at least Monday or Tuesday so the electricians could get in there and get their work done. It um, was all planned out in my mind, and I was ready to go. Every Friday, I had to check in with Dick to give him a progress report on how things were going. Well, when I went to him that Friday, right before the final deadline, I told him I was right on time with the schedule he had given me. Of course, he wasn't expecting me to say that. Like I said, I had lied. He had lied to me about the due date. I was actually a week early, but he didn't tell me that. He didn't want to admit he lied. Funny enough, I found out about his lies through the grapevine right before that meeting. I kept that to myself, though, and decided I would really stick it to him. So I went to him and said, we're packing everything up and taking to it to Disney tomorrow. Are you guys ready for us? Well, he, Dick Irvine, started to panic a little bit, but still, he didn't want to let me know that he lied. He was trying to keep his cool, but I could tell he was losing it a little bit. Uh, let me check and see how things are at the bazaar, he said. Silently, he was praying that it, they would be ready. He then called Joe Fowler, who was in charge of Disneyland at the time, and told him that we were coming down the next day to install everything. Joe replied, but the floor isn't in yet. Dick was surprised by that. He couldn't believe it. So Dick asked him to repeat that. The floor is not in. There is no floor in the place yet, Joe told him again. Now Dick was really starting to panic. Well, you better get the floor in because we're shipping that stuff down tomorrow. Dick still refused to back down and just say, oh, Raleigh, you know what? I lied to you. No, he didn't want to do that. He was too proud. Meanwhile, I was kind of giggling about it to myself, watching him run around, freaking out like that. It was my own silent victory. They had the guys work all night long to put that floor in and finish up the additional touches. I felt bad about that, but I was sticking to my guns on that one. Thankfully, it was all done in time, and we got there to install it. That night was the first time Walt saw the bazaar. He came into me to talk for a while and kind of explore the store. He loved the mirror idea, so I had to thank Jack Olson for that. It was a double mirror kind of um, uh idea. Walt came in with Lily and that was the first time I met her. I was pretty grungy at this point though. I had been working for days doing these last minute adjustments. I had on this big old straw hat and I hadn't shaved in a couple of days. I kind of looked like a mess. But Walt came up to me and shook my hand and said, Raleigh, you did great. He turned to his wife and said, I want you to meet my wife Lily. Lily, this is Raleigh. 
I held my hand out, and she got a little look on her face like, ugh, I have to shake this kid's hand. But when, but she was very gracious, kind, and a sweetheart. Walt pointed her toward one of the mirrors and said, look at the shop, Lily. It goes on and on and on. She kind of looked at him and laughed. He was like a little kid at times and just loved seeing all of it for the first time. I loved seeing him like that, especially when it was because of something I had done. So I was very happy about that. It was a pretty special moment for me. Well, that story of Raleigh Crump and getting the Adventureland Bazaar all together and up in time and and having to work with his new boss, Dick Irvine, and that issue of trust. You know, do you really trust your employees to be transparent about what the circumstances of the situation is? Are you providing your employees, you trust your employees to provide them the time, the tools, the resources to get the job done? That's kind of at the heart of what that little story that from um, from Raleigh Crumbs, it's kind of a cute story, uh, is, is really all about. It's about trust. And trust is at the heart of this podcast and what we wanted to talk about. Now, um, there is a little story I want to share about the Disney Emporiums. In this case, we're going to go to the Magic Kingdom Emporium and talk about um, that uh, experience. When you visit the Emporium on Main Street, USA, in the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World, you will see that on the window toward the entrance of the front porch on that corner of the store is the name of the proprietor of the Emporium. Osh Popham is that name. But who is Osh? What kind of business does he run? And what kind of messages are there for your own organization? Well, Osh Popham was a central character in the Disney Haley Mills film, Summer Magic. If you've not seen it on Disney+, Plus, go see that. It's a lovely... It's a lovely little film. And in it, Oshkosh was played by Burl Ives. There's Burl Ives, if you're not familiar. He's the man who was the snowman in Rudolph the Reindeer, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Um, Osh keeps everyone's spirit alive by looking on the bright side of life. He lives a life filled with hope, much to the chagrin of his wife, Mariah, who is tired of his hopefulness meals, hopefulness days, hopefulness nights, nothing but one everlasting stream of hopefulness, according to Mariah. He is also giving and charitable to the Carey family. There's only one problem. Osh doesn't have the permission from the owner of the house as to whether the Carey family could live there in his absence. Like many, Popham operates on the principle, it's, well, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. For that matter, in his desire to help the Carries, he has rationalized his need to be forthcoming to the owner, Mr. Hamilton, about the Carey family living in his home during his absence. There is this conversation that ensues in Osh Popham's store between he and his wife, Mariah. Osh Popham says, Mariah, 
Why don't you get back to them strawberry preserves? Mariah. Mr. Popham, just answer yes or no. Have you written Mr. Hamilton advising him that you took it upon yourself to rent his yellow house? Osh replies, I told you, I've written him. Mariah responds, has he written you? Osh says, no, but he's a busy man. No news is good news. Besides, he's off in them foreign parts. Heathens might have had him. Mariah retorts, and you're letting them carries tear his house apart. Redoing, planting, young'uns running all over the place, selling them wallpaper for less than it costs you. Osh said, that lot never did move. Mariah then says, that family's bewitched you and I know why. You wore out the people in this town with your stories and now you got new ears to listen to you. But you'll be bewitching when Mr. Hamilton lands in Beulah and wants his house back. I'm warning you, Mr. Popham, if you don't get a letter from Mr. Hamilton soon, I'm taking matters into my own hands. Mariah, your pot's boiling over. Well, today's management doesn't look a whole lot different than turn-of-the-century management over a hundred years ago. That same dilemma occurs. When people don't choose to ask forgiveness rather than permission, it's often a two-way street. It's a two-way street that's centered around trust. First, there's a certain responsibility on the part of the individual to be honest, upfront, and accountable for their actions. But there's another side of the situation too. Too often, the other party makes it difficult for you to be honest and upfront. Or there simply isn't relationships of trust established. Sometimes it's an issue around the processes of communication. Simply a hassle to get up approval up front or try to get buy-in from the other party. In other instances, again, a matter of trust. You don't trust that the individual is looking out for your best interests. So you require that party to clear what they are doing before they can get the go-ahead. Such lack of trust can be draining and often results in the first party simply going underground about what they're doing or what they're up to rather than being upfront. Like any Disney film, everything turns out okay as Mr. Hamilton returns only to find out that he has eyes for Haley Mills. Well, who wouldn't? But in real life, it doesn't always work out happily ever after. Often we fail to be transparent about what we're doing or we fail to be open to others who are seeking our understanding and approval. In short, we end up with issues around trust. Now, last week in my uh, previous podcast, we went up and down uh, Main Street USA. Well, actually, on the on on the one um, left side of the street, and talked about the different buildings and the and the beautiful details that are totally um, amazing. There, at, at first glance you think this is a little kind of familiar especially the emporium kind of familiar to to you know what you see at magic kingdom and walt disney world but step inside and there are some amazing beautiful um details um and they are they are worthy of paying attention to that was the focus of the podcast now at that emporium at disneyland paris 
Um, there is a unique antique found in the center of the store. Because theming is so replete in this park, one may pass by barely noticing its existence. But if you have the opportunity, head inside and take a closer look because it says so much about trust. In the center of the store is a device actually used in stores like this a century ago. The purpose of this device, and I have photos of it at my Disney uh, at disneyatplay.com. Um, the purpose of this device is to make change for each pur purchase. According to Eddie Sato, former Imagineer and show producer responsible for Main Street USA at Disneyland Paris, they found this invention, invention through research photos. In the old days, cashiers were not trusted to handle change. They would take the money, place it in a basket with the sales slip, pull the rope, and it went on a little track upstairs where management would make the change and then send the basket back downstairs to the customer. Imagine if that were the status quo of the Emporium today. Lines at the end of the day would go back to the castle with guests waiting to make their purchase. If any store followed that kind of thinking, they would lose significant business. We see the same issues of trust happening today. Um, Bob Iger, CEO of Disney, calls it the Tom Murphy School of Management. Tom Murphy was chairman and chief executive officer of Capital Cities ABC until Disney purchased it in 1996. But up until that time, he was a great mentor to Bob Iger, who would later become CEO of Disney. Bob looks at his role this way, quote, in a strange way, I am the brand manager of Disney. In an article with Fortune, he noted that his job is, in the words of his friend, the late Steve Jobs, more, quote, brand um, deposits than brand withdrawals. Warren Buffett says of Bob Iger, Bob is just very effective. He always is calm and rational and makes sense, and therefore he gets things done with other people. He runs things without a heavy hand. That's because he trusts them. Jay Rasulo, former CFO of Disney, once noted, I've heard Bob say more than once, quote, if I can't trust a person to do that, then I need a different person, end of quote. And so we are empowered to basically run those business areas. I would say that Bob has a state versus federal philosophy. Bob Iger himself calls it the Tom Murphy School of Management. Quote, you put good people in jobs and give them room to run. You involve yourself in a responsible way, but not to the point where you are usurping their authority. I don't have the time or concentration, and you could argue maybe even the talent to do that, end of quote. In truth, trust paves the way for so many things that make it possible to create performance excellence. But if you don't have that foundation of trust played out in the scenarios that we discussed, if you don't trust your employees enough to give them the time and resources to do their job, if you're not being honest about when it's due or when it's supposed to be done, if, you, if you're not honest or if you choose to go around others because there isn't that trust or because you're afraid of getting your hand slapped um, and that it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission, 
you have a trust issue. And when you're sending up a little tiny thing on a rail with the sales slip and the cash in hand because you don't trust your employees to make the change, you see all these kinds of systems and philosophies and issues, they all require a culture of trust. That's how you build performance excellence based on a culture of trust. Now, with podcasts like these, we offer souvenirs, free souvenirs for you and your organization. So let's let's ask a few questions based on this experience. First, do you trust those you work with? Are you transparent with them because you trust them? In trusting others, do you give them the time, money, and resources to succeed in their work? Um, as an employee, do you approach matters as being easier to ask forgiveness than it is to ask permission? Are you going underground to get things done? If so, why? As an employer or proprietor, are you removing the barriers that keep your employees from wanting to go around you to get things done? Furthermore, consider these issues regarding trust itself. Who do you trust? Do you trust others? Do you trust yourself? Do others trust you? Are there hidden costs behind that mistrust? Are there inherent rewards in showing trust? How am I avoiding the impression of looking over someone's shoulder all the time? How am I building trust, collaborative relationships with others? How am I giving people greater space and freedom to do their role, provided, providing assurance that the job will get done? These are the kinds of questions you have to ask around trust. And the, we don't take enough time to honestly have those conversations in our organizations. We need to have them. We assume that trust is instinctive. Either I trust them or if I don't. No, trust is intentional. You have to build trust if you want a culture of trust. You have to put efforts and processes in, in place so that you can build relationships of trust with others. And that's at the heart of this message. Thank you for joining me for this Disney at Work podcast. We appreciate you being with us. Sorry uh, that, that uh, we didn't get this out on time. I've got family in town this week, but I assure you we got more podcasts ahead. We're gonna go back to Disneyland Paris. We got lots of things to cover in the parks. So stay tuned, make sure you are subscribed to this podcast and make sure you check out the Disney Wayfinder Society, places where you can learn more best in business ideas from Disney that you can apply back to your organization. Go check disneyatplay.com. You will see a link that will give you a chance to check that out. Again, thanks for joining us. And in the words, a Sinbad storybook voyage. Always follow the compass of your heart. Have a great day. We'll see you real soon. <laughs>